Welcome to Dallas. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. I grew up playing baseball. I played four years of Little League. And in Winchester, after Little League comes Colt League. I played three more years of Colt League. And I, I did okay. I wasn't the world's best baseball player, but I, I did okay. And I enjoyed it. It was a passion. And I thought maybe, maybe I'll play baseball a long, long time. You know, that was one of my dreams. And I so looked forward to my senior year of baseball. And I, I want to say it was two days before our coach announced the, the, the official starting lineup uh, for my senior year. It was, it was the week of our first game when he announced the lineup and he got to starting second base instead of saying my name, which I was expecting and the team was expecting and a whole lot of parents were. Coach Beckman announced freshman Chuck Beckman as the starting second baseman. And I remember just kind of shock. I guess I was stunned. I saw parents angry. There were two or three dads in particular that were like talking for a couple of days about what they may do and writing a letter. I remember my dad, my dad's here today. My dad was pretty angry and I was impressed in how you handled your emotions, dad. Like you kept it in check. Um, my anger didn't hit for like a week or two after the season started, and I realized I'm not going to play much my last year of high school, and it was just crushing. I did play a little bit, not very much that year, and that was the last time I played baseball. Humans have a way of hurting us. And I'm going to repeat what I said last week about how I know I'm confident you've been wounded by another person, by other people. I know you have, and if you haven't, if you're sitting here thinking, if you're listening, thinking, you know, I really haven't. I don't really know what it's like to be wounded by another person. It's because you're very young, <laughs> uh, and boy, do you have some surprises coming your way, or you're super secluded. There's reasons in your life where you're just living on an island and you don't really engage people a whole lot. It's got to be one of those two scenarios. Because if you're engaged in life, you've been hurt by people. When you think about the trusted person who wounded you, the friend, the longtime friend, Maybe a neighbor, maybe a coworker, maybe a boss, or maybe an employee who worked for you. When you think about the family member, maybe the spouse, maybe it was a parent who deeply wounded you. The person on this planet who should most protect you was the one who actually created the greatest hurt in your life. Maybe it was manipulation in the way something was twisted about you or someone you love. I don't know who has wounded you. I don't know who's hurt you, but I know it's happened. And I know it's going to happen again. It's inevitable. You are going to be hurt in this life. You're going to be mistreated. This is what wounded people do. Flawed 
and broken people hurt other people. And it's going to happen to you, and it's going to happen multiple times a month. <laughs> and that last part again, I said this last week, that's supposed to be a little bit of comic relief, but sadly, sometimes it's not. So I introduced to you the, the, the man, Everett Worthington, last week. He was introduced to me earlier this summer at a North Point retreat. North Point is a church in Atlanta that we're partnered with, and one of the staffers there, in talking about a forgiveness story of me and journey, a journey in my life to forgive, and he was telling me, as a pastor and leader at North Point, a journey, long journey he was on to, to forgive someone. He introduced me to whoever at Worthington is, who is now the professor emeritus of psychology at, at VCU here in Virginia. And I gave you an amazing tool that Everett Worthington developed as, a, as an expert. He's considered, he's renowned as a forgiveness expert, he's called often. He created what's called, what he calls a, the forgiveness intervention. And I relayed this story at the end of last week's message, and I won't retell it. You can listen to that on our podcast if, if, if you missed last week. But Everett Worthington has devoted his whole professional career to studying and researching, writing articles about and publishing books about forgiveness and what happens when we forgive and what happens when we don't forgive. And so what we're about to watch is an interesting interview here. John Ortberg, and by the way, I want to credit John Ortberg for inspiring so much of today's message. John Ortberg got to interview Everett Worthington. And it's funny to me that the only way he could interview him was in his car. So John Ortberg's sitting in his car doing this video interview. And he's asking Everett Worthington a story that I'm familiar with that happened to Everett Worthington just before his book on forgiveness was published. They were, they were a couple of edits through the process, and the book was either about to go to the publisher or had just arrived at the publisher on forgiveness after so much research when something really hard to comprehend happened to Ev Worthington. So let's watch this interview, and then I've got some thoughts in terms of unpacking some of this together. Let's, let's watch. So we're talking to Ev Worthington, uh, psychologist, follower of Jesus, guru, and Ev, very clearly, we could talk for about 20 hours without breaking. You have a remarkable store of knowledge and stories, particularly on this topic of forgiveness and how to actually help people make it real in their lives, bringing together faith, theology, spiritual life, but also the practical resources of social science and psychology. Um, one of the most remarkable parts of your own story is you had become an expert on this. You had done research on it. You had actually finished the manuscript for a book, turned it into a publish, publisher, and, and then you hit a crisis of forgiveness like very few of us will ever have any idea. Would you mind telling that story? Sure. Uh... What happened was my uh, my mother was murdered in a uh, a home invasion that was on a New Year's Eve night, and <clears throat> she didn't drive, so th there was no car in the driveway, and she had gone to bed early, and so the house was dark, and apparently a young man, or perhaps more than one, uh, saw this darkened house on New Year's Eve night, thinking. This is going to be a 
perfect crime and, and I just need to waltz in there and take everything of value. And so he broke in and uh, as he was pulling things off of a shelf right outside of her bedroom, she uh, awakened and uh, must have come out of her bedroom and confronted him. And, and he had a crowbar in his hand. And so he bludgeoned her with this crowbar. And, you know, I think one of the things really that helped me in the end forgive him was that he apparently was distraught over what he had done. And he, he ran through the house and he broke every mirror in the house and really tried to destroy pretty much every reflective surface it destroyed the television the toaster you know anything that it was almost like he could not look himself in the eye so there was a lot more to you know forgiving him than just knowing that but uh but that, I think, was one of the things that, that really helped me to uh, be able to forgive him. Thank you. Thank you for talking about that. I just tried to imagine um, getting that news. And uh, when you found out what happened, um, the grief and sadness and trying to picture the events and, and then the anger, rage, unfairness, loss must have been enormous. Um, what was that like? How soon did the thoughts of forgiveness strike you? And of course, by the time that happened, you had already spent how many years studying forgiveness? Yeah, I had uh, been doing research on it by for seven years, you know, uh, you know, before that, but I'd been doing clinical. So it was kind of almost it was already at the top of your mind just because you'd been spending so many years with it. And that, you know, in the end really was something that drew me toward forgiveness because we had talked about this the day of the, you know, I drove down to Knoxville, Tennessee, where she lives. So it's about a seven hour, seven and a half hour drive with my sister. And we were talking about what we had learned in the investigation that day. And I was so angry that I, I remember pointing to a baseball bat sitting against the wall in my brother's back room and saying, I wish whoever did that were here, I would take that bat and I would kill him. And uh, yeah. so I was full uh, of rage. And, and then, you know, that night, I was staying at my aunt's house uh, nearby and I just walked in the bedroom for four hours back and forth around the bed, just raging, just uh, in, uh, internally. But uh, eventually about 3 a.m. I, I thought I need to do something a little more productive than just rage. And I sat down to write a eulogy for my mom and uh, suddenly it dawned on me, you know, here I am a forgiveness researcher, you know, a, 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 a Christian who values forgiveness. And yet I have not allowed myself to even think the word forgiveness in almost 24 hours. And I thought, I, I really ought to think through this 
reach forgiveness model, you know, uh, that we had developed in our research and, and, uh, and try to at least consider the beginning of forgiveness. And so that started me that night uh, thinking about it. And as I work through the model of trying to put myself in this young man's place, of, here it's uh, New Year's Eve, it's cold in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he's out in the, in the dark, in the cold, thinking this is going to be a perfect crime, I'm going to be rich, and you know, and then he gets confronted by my mom, who's looking at his face, and he's thinking, she's spoiling my perfect crime, and I'm probably going to go to jail because she can recognize me. He, you know, it's a kid probably, and he, he uh, you know, has that crowbar, and he has no impulse control, and he, he you know, hits her repeatedly. So as I thought through this, you know, and thinking about what he might have been thinking, I suddenly flashed back to that night where I pointed at that baseball bat and said, I, this Christian adult, you know, who studied forgiveness, I would take that bat and deliberately hit him in the head till he died. And I couldn't help but think, whose heart is darker here, you know? And, and the answer was, well, my heart is darker than this guy with the impulse control problem, whose perfect crime is spoiled, who's angry, who's afraid he's going to go to jail. And, and, and yet I knew that the Lord could forgive me. And I thought, if I can be forgiven for the darkness in my heart, then who am I to hold this unforgiveness against this young man? And I was able to forgive him, to make a decision to forgive and actually feel some amount of emotional peace as a result. And so, so as you talk about that, we'll um, maybe talk more about the reach model and you can walk through it the next time we talk. But it sounds like two elements here were, um, one, trying to understand more what happened from the point of view of, in this case, the person that killed your mom. And then secondly, trying to be aware of your own fallenness and um, your own capacity to do something that's terribly wrong, as opposed to um, this person is awful and I'm innocent. Exactly. It's a remarkable story that I was made aware of earlier this year. And it takes us to the main drive of last Sunday morning together, where we talked about it's okay to recall, it's okay to remember, it's okay to think back on the hurt in your own life. We sometimes have this notion, or we've been taught this, or maybe it's been implied that if you forgive, then you should totally forget. It should be out of your memory, and that's just not realistic. It's not in Scripture. So when we do recall, when we do remember, what's so key is that we involve God's Spirit. We allow Jesus in the remembering process, because that always, in that recalling of how we've been wounded, how we've been treated, how we were betrayed, how deeply you were hurt, 
When you involve Jesus in the remembering, you're inviting God's spirit to remind you of how you need, you also need forgiveness. How ugly your words have been. Some of your actions that have needed forgiveness. When you and I remember our hurt, to be true to ourselves, to be true to yourself, and to be true to the, other, to, to the people around you in your life, you must also recall your need for forgiveness. Now, we could spend hours looking at how common, how ubiquitous the theme is in God's story in Scripture of our need for forgiveness. I mean, it is, we, we could do six months worth of study on all the scriptures. I'm going to give you just two examples here, one from John, one from Paul. John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our selfish need for control is what sin means. If we confess our sins, he, God is faithful and true and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word that means what is not right in the eyes of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. This theme of you and I, yeah, we need to offer forgiveness, but remember, it's in the context of our being broken, your being broken, because you need forgiveness. As you extend forgiveness to someone else, you're opening the door, the channel of God's mercy and forgiveness. To cleanse you and make you right. We talked a little bit last week about what forgiveness actually is. Practically speaking, forgiveness. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a, I think I'll block what happened out of my mind now. Does that mean I've forgiven? Practically speaking, forgiveness is replacing ill will toward the person who's wounded you with goodwill. This doesn't mean you write them a love letter. It doesn't mean you go to a movie together necessarily and you become best friend or you pretend that it never happened. Goodwill, that's not what goodwill means. Goodwill may mean something like a sincere prayer for the person. That maybe their eyes are opened. I mean, for, for me, in times past in my life, goodwill, stepping in the good that God was calling me toward, toward someone who's hurt me, sometimes has begun just as a first step of just praying, God, would you open their eyes to maybe, maybe how they've created hurt and they don't see it? That's actually a form of goodwill. Not forgiving is poison for you and I. We think it's just. It's easy for you and I to think, well, not forgiving the wrong is the right thing to do. I'm actually promoting some of God's justice that needs to happen. I'm actually holding them accountable. I mean, we'll tell ourselves, that's not accountability, but we'll tell ourselves things like that. We'll, we'll, we'll justify our anger or wanting to see something, maybe not something physic, physical harm happen to the person, but we want to see some form of justice or embarrassment or we want them to feel some of the hurt that I felt. This is all part of ill will. And see, that only contaminates you and me. That only blocks you from being the image of God that he's designed you to be. You are the one being hurt. 
You may, your lack of forgiveness toward a person might cause them some level of discomfort. It might create some awkwardness for them. But the real damage is actually to yourself in not forgiving, not extending forgiveness to the person who's created pain or who's betrayed you. After last Sunday's message, Robert Green here at, here at church, just we, we chatted a little bit about, about the message. And he reminded me of this quote, unforgiveness is like you drinking poison, waiting for the person who hurt you to die. When you, when you walk in unforgiveness towards someone because they've, they've created this damage and this pain, you're actually poisoning yourself by allowing yourself to continue in unforgiveness. It's as if your mind thinks damage is being done back to them now. I'm righting the wrong when actually you're closing the door to walking out and living out the image that God wants you to be of him and his character. And you're not, you're not just being blocked from the image of God to that person. It, it hinders you from being the voice and hope and life and mercy and beauty in this world and to the people around you that God's called you to be. Forgiveness is the gift of freedom that God has given us. To become good willers, to become the reflective nature of God in a broken world where humans have learned to hurt one another, we need something different. We need to see the reality of God and other human beings. And when you and I walk in forgiveness, the people around us have the opportunity to see something so counter to what we see where we work, in media, in our own families, there's suddenly this light. Like, how do you explain this? You're loving when you've been hurt. And what they're seeing is a reflection of Jesus. Because at the core of us involving Jesus in our remembering, when you choose to allow him close to the hurt, the betrayal that you feel, you're allowing him to speak the full truth. Brad, it's not just you who's been hurt. You've also hurt others. And you've needed my forgiveness. And by the way, you and I are the reason that Jesus went to the cross. He suffered and experienced unspeakable pain because of our selfish need or desire for control. Now, I want to clarify a couple of things after this interview you know, this is such a sobering story that this man was able to forgive. The man who killed his mom. I want to I clarify a couple of things that I have learned over years of life and particularly from Scripture and from walking with some of you who've been with me in, in some hurtful moments in life. I want to relay two specific thoughts about reconciliation. The idea of re refriending or reestablishing the relationship as it was before the hurt, before you were wounded. So, first thought, my first thought comes from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus teaching how counter God's realm and God's reality is to broken planet Earth. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Therefore, if you were offering your gift to God in worship, 
whatever that gift is. And, you know, the, 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 the picture is the, the front of a church or the front of the, the, the temple bringing your offering to the altar. Maybe it's, you know, as in Jesus' day coming from the Old Testament, maybe it's an animal from some of the first of the produce of your farm or your land um, being brought to the storehouse of the temple. Or maybe it's just open-handed worship. God, I'm here to sing to you or to say back to you how beautiful you are, that you are my God. Jesus says when you're offering this gift of worship and you remember there that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift. Because now, immediately, God's concern for your worship of him is that you go to that brother or sister. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to the person. Then come back and offer your song. Offer your reflection to God of his greatness or the physical offering that you want to bring. God's heart in scripture is clear. He desires not just healing for your heart and how you were wounded. He desires healing for the relationship. This is what God wants. And I'm going to use the word bias. Scripture shows us the overwhelming bias of God after wounding or betrayal or hurt or mistreatment is reconciliation. That two people who've been friends or who are family members who are in some type of relationship would have reestablished that relationship as part of God's healing. This is God's bias. This is what he wishes. This is what God wants. And here's the second thought about this, about reconciliation, and this is essential to us, healing. And I just, I had the sense, I, I, I was able to talk this week with Lou and Anike about, about some of this message, and we, we got into a lengthy conversation about forgiveness, and I told them, I, I, I don't know who, not a single person has crossed my mind, but I have the deepest sense in my spirit, in my heart, that someone or maybe more than one person were going to be freed today. Because of what we're going to spend our next couple minutes on. The second reality that I've learned about reconciliation is, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to start with Matthew 18. A little further in Matthew. I'm going to make this my starting place for this point. Matthew 18, Jesus is talking. Um, Peter approaches him in Jesus' teaching here. And Peter says, Jesus... Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And the, the context suggests that Peter is sort of proud of himself. Like, should I be willing to forgive seven times? Someone who would wound and mistreat and repeat and it becomes some, some sort of a cycle? And Jesus answered Peter, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And that, that, that's somewhat rhetorical, not that there's an actual magical limit to this. Jesus' point is, it's limitless, Peter. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to be lied about. You're going to be lied to. You're going to be betrayed. It's amazing how this is just prior to Jesus being betrayed by one of his closest friends. And in my reality, Peter, to walk is the image of God, different from the broken version of yourself, but the healed, becoming whole version of Jesus shining out of you into this broken planet Earth, 
for you to be that person, you must always forgive. Okay, now, here's the problem that I think a lot of us, and I for the longest time have had about this, is that this can give the impression that that means we must always reconcile every time, over and over. There's a pattern of mistreatment here. There's abuse. Now my counselor's saying this is abuse. You're being abused verbally or emotionally. Or, but it seems like I'm supposed to 77 times reconcile. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus is addressing specifically forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciling. God's bias, his wish, his hope would always be that not only would your heart be healed so you can image God, but that your relationship that was broken could be healed and restored. But it's not always possible. And forgiveness and reconciliation are different. Forgiveness is something that happens inside of you about another person, independent of that person. Reconciliation is something that happens between two people. And it must be earned. Reconciliation must be earned. When trust is broken, to have a relationship again, trust must be rebuilt and reestablished. And, you know, you could make the argument that followers of Jesus can freely give trust. Like, I don't, I don't need you to earn trust with me. I'm just going to offer it to you. But that can happen, especially at the beginning of a relationship, even with a stranger. But when trust is broken, trust must be reestablished. I mean, to have a relationship again, it, it, it must be. Through conversation, through actions, through a new pattern that's established. God's bias, his desire is the relationship would also be healed, but sometimes that is not possible, and sometimes it's not wise. And this is what I believe may be freeing for someone who has been walking, wounded and hurt for a long time, maybe many months, maybe many years. And the concept of forgiving, meaning I must reestablish the relationship the way it was, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. My doctor's telling me not to do that. My friends are cautioning me, don't ever. So I want to look at an example from David's life. David, who had been anointed king as a young man while Israel still had King Saul reigning. David is gaining popularity. God's favor has been spoken over him. And jealous, uh, Saul becomes very jealous. And as David's success grows as an apprentice of Saul, as a, as a servant of Saul... Saul becomes more and more jealous, and then he loses his mind one particular day, goes into a rage, and tries to spear David to the wall. It doesn't work. God protects David. David escapes that situation. And so Saul tries again. He sends David to fight the Philistines, thinking the Philistines, their army is going to kill David. That didn't work. Saul turns to his son Jonathan, David's best friend. And he tries to turn Jonathan against his own best friend David and actually conspires and asks Jonathan to kill David. Jonathan's not about to do that. This doesn't work. 
let's read this text. This is just a portion of that story from 1 Samuel 19. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. Why then would you, do, would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? This is an ongoing saga. It's one of the R-rated movies that I think would just be spectacular on the screen of how deep the hate becomes, how David is fleeing for his life. He's trying to trust this calling of God in his life while people are trying to kill him. The king is trying to kill him. It's a long, long episode. It's it's epic in the way it's told in, in 1 Samuel. Saul doesn't stop. He's relentless in his jealousy and anger. He tries to kill David seven times. In this particular place here in 1 Samuel 26, Saul has taken some of his mighty warriors to a place called Hakalah to kill David there. And the story turns, and it becomes very ironic that one night while Saul is sleeping in a cave with his men, David and a few of his warriors approach and find King Saul asleep right in front of him. Let's read here from 1 Samuel 26. So David and Abishai went to the army, went to Saul's army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. I won't need to do this twice, David. But David says to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. Talk about forgiveness. Talk about not wanting ill will in a moment that seems almost scripted. It's almost like the spirit realm has just set the stage for you to get vengeance. You could even justify ending Saul's life to protect yourself. They take Saul's spear, the king's spear in the water jug, so that Saul would wake up and realize someone was right next to me and didn't kill me. And David wanted him to realize it was him. Not to taunt him, but to drive home the point, why are you doing this? I'm not killing you when I have the opportunity. What is this madness? So we continue reading here. This is powerful, this verse. For anyone who's trying to figure out how to look at a relationship that has been damaged or destroyed because of the actions or behavior of someone else, this is interesting. Verse 13. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. I mean, this point couldn't be made clearer. There was a wide space between them. When Saul realizes what happened in verse 21... He calls out across this canyon, I have sinned. He's calling out to David. He realizes, David, 
That was my sword. It was him. He could have slit my throat last night. I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. Because you considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and, have, and you have been terribly wrong. I'm sorry. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Now listen to what David says. And this is what I just sensed in my spirit may be healing or freeing for some of us today. David's response. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I could do, meaning the wisest thing I could do, I could have killed him, I could have taken vengeance, I could have spread the word through the land of how evil Saul is. The best thing I could do, the wisest thing, the best leadership move that I could do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. This is a case where God's spirit is warning David. I don't know if you need God's spirit, to be honest with you, to warn you. It's like the clue phone is ringing. This guy is trying to kill you. He's tried seven times. I don't think you should reconcile with him. Was Saul's apology sincere? Maybe. We could even be generous and say probably. It doesn't seem to matter in this case because there's a pattern. There's a cycle. There's wisdom is speaking until this person becomes more whole and can actually walk in and live in and communicate in the reestablished relationship. It would be unwise to put yourself back into the context of more hurt and being wounded again. Juxtapose this to Peter's question, should I forgive seven times? And Jesus saying 77 times. David's life was almost taken seven times. It's interesting. I don't know if this is foreshadow or if this was just coincidence. But seven times, David had to learn, open his heart to God's spirit to forgive to continue to serve this king. But this is very different than reconciling. The person you may need to forgive, the person that has caused hurt, maybe unspeakable hurt in your life, they may not be alive anymore. You can't reconcile. You physically can't reconcile with them. But forgiveness is not only possible, forgiveness is a must. You can allow the hurt to recall in your mind and spirit that you wounded Jesus. You're selfish. What scripture defines sin being as selfish control. Your own selfishness. The way you have reacted out of character from the image of God. You becoming a decreator. Not an imager of God, but decreating. Through language or attitude or mistreatment of someone, you're remembering your own hurt and wounding and involving Jesus in that recall opens your spirit to the Holy Spirit, showing you just how ugly 
you have been, the potential for ugly in your own heart and life that isn't guided by the character of God, by the spirit of Jesus. You have to forgive to be who God wants you to be in this world. Not just to be whole for yourself, but to live out wholeness where there's just brokenness all around. And your coworkers and the people sitting in traffic next to you and the people in your home are so desperate to see the truth of God in another human being. You only release that in your life when you step into forgiveness. And I know it's hard. Trust me, I know what it's like to do walks morning after morning and trying to, God, I know you're good. And I know you can heal me. I know you can make my family whole. I'm just not there yet. And offering goodwill to someone who's caused me damage. I understand what that process is like. But keep walking. And continue being honest with God. And underneath that, maybe whisper to God is the idea, the prayer, Jesus, heal me. Make me whole. I want to be alive again. I want to be able to speak compassion and mercy in a very broken world. And help me to see that I've needed your forgiveness. That's the beginning of empathy. To be able to think of a young man in the cold dark of Knoxville, Tennessee, who maybe is poor, maybe somehow in that young man's mind has justified breaking into a house to survive. Maybe there are reasons that you and I couldn't even imagine why there's drug addiction involved. Who knows? Who knows? But the ability to be able to think empathetically of where someone is and how they could have possibly come to the point in life of hurting you or hurting your family. That is only possible. That kind of empathy is only possible when we open ourselves, when we remember and recall with the attitude that maybe Jesus has something to show me about my own wounding of others, my own capacity to create hurt or to be ugly. I hope that you'll reconcile. I hope that you'll attempt it. You can't even control the reconciliation. You can, only, you can only control your part of that, your movement in the relationship, your sit down in someone's home or someone's office or maybe in a safer place like a coffee shop. You can't control the response or the behavior or the healing of the other person. God wants reconciliation. It's his greatest desire that our broken relationships that we would be made whole, we would be healed, but that our broken relationships would also be healed. But when it's not possible and when it's not wise, don't believe the lie that you can also continue to walk in unforgiveness because they are two different things. Forgiveness, setting someone else free that they no longer owe you, is actually about your own freedom. So what do we do with this? Our band's going to come, and we're going to close in this song, and you may sing these words out loud. You may 
study the words on the screen. Maybe your heart's in a really good place today. And you just, you're just excited to worship God for the good in your life. I'm going to encourage you in these next few minutes to process just a couple things here. Name the crushing hurt. If you still feel the pain and hurt that someone has, maybe it's unimaginable the way someone has wounded you. Name it. Recall it. Don't try to act like you don't remember it anymore because God wants you to totally forget. That's not correct. We're going to spend some time next Sunday talking about that misnomer. But when you recall the pain and the hurt, allow Jesus' spirit to do the whole, the whole process of reflecting. It's only part of the process if you just reflect on how you've been treated. When you allow God's spirit to bring your heart to the place where you recognize, wow, the damage I've created, intended or unintended, the words that have come out of my mouth, the things that I've said to my spouse, the thoughts I've had about another person, how low could I fall in life to think what I've thought about another human being? See, this is the Spirit of God at work in you. This is the whole picture of you remembering, not just the half of how you've been treated. This is what moves us to real healing and empathy. I think maybe I can understand a little bit of why those ugly words were projected toward me. I think maybe I can understand a little bit about someone's state in life or maybe the way they've been treated. Maybe this is a defensive mechanism that they've learned and it wounded me. This is the beginning of not only healing, but you and I coming front and center with the reality that we need Jesus' forgiveness. So I'm just, I'm, I, I lead you today in this simple prayer. Maybe this is where your healing starts. Jesus, I've never really allowed you to forgive me. I'm broken. I need you to make me whole. And before I think about other people, I need you to make me whole by forgiving me for the damage and the ugly, the selfishness. And then I just challenge you to reconcile. If it's healthy, if the person has the capacity to be the good friend or to be the good family member again, and they're able to heal along with you, seek it. Because God came into this world to heal. And if it's not possible, and if it's not wise, forgive. Because all you can really control is whether you are going to be light and salt in the image of God in this world, or whether you're going to hold back God's work in you. So you can create a little more damage to the person who's hurt you. And just stop believing that lie today. Jesus, we ask you today to begin your healing work in this planet. We want to see the Middle East healed. We want to see war stopped. We want to see our country become united. There's so much division and hurt and damage in this world, but God, it must start with me. 
It must start with the people in this room and the people listening to this message. May it start with me. May it begin with me. Would you heal me by forgiving me for my brokenness and my selfishness? And would you work your empathy deep into me where I could see how others could grow to a point of hurting someone else? And God, if reconciliation is possible, would you give me the courage to step toward it? And if it's not wise and it's not possible, would you free me today from equating reconciliation with forgiveness? May I become a forgiver and an imager of you in this broken world.